Good morning, Sanctuary. It's good to see you. It's good to be with you. Um, contemplating the first service, just had to announce Simon and Sue Jason for whoever created uh, air conditioning. Uh, it's a good thing, isn't it? Yes. Uh, if you just uh, prepare yourself to give this morning as we continue our worship, and, and if you're here for the very first time, if you're a guest, love to know who you are, and if you'd take the bulletin and kind of tear off that little form there and fill that out and drop it in the offering in a minute, we'd love to make contact with you and just help um, connect with you in any way possible that you would like. Um, if you're just kind of sneaking in and don't really want anybody to know you're here, then that's okay. We can deal with that, but uh, um, we would love to uh, just know who you are. As you give this morning, again, thank you for your faithfulness uh, throughout the summer. We still have a pretty high percentage of our congregation that's going to move every week and vacations. And, and so uh, your consistency is, has kept us moving in, in this process. And as you can probably have noticed, there's a lot of remodeling that's going on. Our whole children's wing has been totally revamped. And many of you gave into that. And uh, actually with the consolidation of the campuses, we were able to sell some equipment that we didn't need. And and many of you helped to give originally to help pay for that, and so everybody's kind of given into this project. And, and so thank you for that. And you'll see every week for the next few weeks a little bit of transformation. Most of the painting is done now. Uh, carpet will go in the next week or two, all the new carpet in that area, uh, new check-in kiosk for the kids. It's going to be, kids are going to have a, a fun experience connecting with their classrooms, and each room's going to have a theme. And, and uh, so anyway, you'll, you'll start seeing those changes. And so thanks for for making that happen. We also want to give opportunities consistently. We do this uh, several times throughout the year to give opportunities for us to think outside of ourselves and to give to those that are, that are in need in either our local community or around the world someplace. And it's our um, annual backpack um, outreach opportunity. Um, if you've not um, been aware of that, what we do every year is, is we find some needy students in the community that just don't have that they need for school and try to provide those for them. So we'll, provide, we'll give them a backpack full of school supplies. And then about a third of those will go um, for some of the homeless that are actually in, in the Tulsa community. We have children and youth that are homeless. We have a, a connection with them uh, that uh, an organization is trying to help them uh, envision a new future and a different future. And so those backpacks will actually have clothes in it and and uh, some other significant things to help them. And so the next two Sundays, we'll have an opportunity for you to give and an, and a special offering for that. So be planning for that. In just a couple of weeks, we are going to have probably most of the people back from vacation. We're going to have quite a few um, students that are going to be coming back to the community. And we've tried to blend our congregation. We're going to be snug. And so... Um, we have a few seats here, but those are going to be take, gobbled up pretty quick. And so we are looking to kind of, those of you particularly that are already connected to the community, we're looking to kind of spread ourselves out a little bit. And uh, you've been waiting for this, I know, and we're actually going to say it this morning, that we are we're going to be going to a Saturday night service, um, August the 19th. Um, a few little, okay, all right, a few of you, that's all right. Um, we'll tell you. A little bit more details. We'll have two Sunday morning services. We may adjust these times slightly. And what we're trying to do is find an opportunity for kind of the the, the service that most 
newcomers, people outside of the faith who have come to Christ, we just want to make room for them. And so we're going to be encouraging people to consider Saturday night service or um, a, a different service on Sunday morning, maybe the next service. Premierly, we're going to be talking a little bit more about that so that we can make it more comfortable for those that are, that are coming in. And so, um, and everybody that clapped, and we had a lot of claps from the first service to the Saturday night service, we have you on video, and uh, we, we expect you to show up. Let's pray as we uh, give this morning. Father, we thank you for your provision in our lives. You've given so much to us, life itself. And, and we just trust your blessing on each person here, each individual, each family, as they make sacrifices and give into this project and in this service, this particular vision that has been passed through. We trust you for what we're responsible for in the kingdom. We want to be about your stuff. So as they give, we pray uh, that all of these gifts would go into furthering your kingdom, that your will would be done, that they'd be done as we want them done, wherever they are here. And we trust your blessing in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Ushers, come on up here this morning. And if you can stand and give at the same time, I want to see that. If you can't, just be seated. One of the things that uh, we are about here is we like to see people from different kind of um, backgrounds and, and Christian traditions come together and see that we are all part of the same kingdom. And many of you come from a variety of different traditions. And you know how we Christians are. We tend to get a certain way that we think things are supposed to be, and then we lock into it and think we've got it right. And we've got it right, and everybody else's does it just different. Let's have a party. And we just separate ourselves. We're just about trying to pull the bodies together. And so we love those expressions, um, and yet each Sunday when we come, there are certain things that are, that are there that are things that we have to stand on and really unify. And so that's why we stand and speak our beliefs and speak the apostles' creed on Sunday. These things kind of lock us in each how we live those out and different ways that people take communion and different kinds of things, we're not going to really be um, uh, too pushy on that because there's different expressions of that. But this is what we believe unifies us. So let's speak this this morning. We believe in God, the Father Almighty, the creator of heaven and earth. We believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who for us and for our salvation was conceived by the Holy Spirit born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead, and on the third day he rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the holy Christian church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and life everlasting. Amen. Amen. Good. You can be seated. That's good. Good morning. This morning's reading is out of Ephesians chapter 4, 
six verses. I'll start with the first one. Uh, Paul writes, as a prisoner of the Lord, then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. I love the notion that Paul starts out seeing himself as a prisoner of the Lord. You know, if you've ever fallen in love with someone, you know that, that there's a connection that happens that in one way you can talk about yourself as being a prisoner of love because there's something about that person that has seized you. And there's some sense of obligation in your heart toward that person. And so in a very tender way, you can speak of yourself as a prisoner. And this is the context in which Paul says, I'm a prisoner of the Lord. There's something in me that's obligated. My life has been transformed. There's something in me that, Im- that has an impulse of adoration toward him. And I am, I am obligated by that. I think that's a beautiful thing to acknowledge. But he says here that as a prisoner of the Lord, he's telling us, you guys live a life worthy of the calling. Everybody say the calling. The calling that you have received. Paul is claiming that we all have a calling. If you're ever called out by someone, that means that they're acknowledging you as a person and they're sort of attending to you. Paul is saying that somehow God attends to us, that he calls us by name as individuals. And and what this suggests is that you matter, that you are on purpose in some way. Um, In Psalm 139, very famous text, the psalmist writes, For you, God, you created my inmost being. You knit me together when I was in my mom." my mom's room. I praise you, he says, because I am fearfully, that means intentionally, and wonderfully made. He says, your works are wonderful. I know that full well. So when he looked at himself, he realized he's not just talking about himself. He's talking about himself as a created being from an intentional God. And then he says, my frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth again in his mom. Your eyes saw my unformed body, and watch. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. He's saying that, God, you were thinking about me coming into the world, and you actually wrote some stuff down of what you imagined my life would be like, what you imagined my place would be, my role would be. How many would like to take a peek in the book about you, right? <laughs> well, then we read Jeremiah. Jeremiah says it very explicitly. Verse 4, the word of chapter 1, the word of the Lord came to me saying, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart. I appointed you to do some stuff. Now, we know it's true for King David. We know it's true for Jeremiah. The question lingers, a fair one. Is this true for everybody? Did God know us before we were in the womb? Did God actually appoint us, set us apart for something, some kind of engagement in a story that he's telling? Acts chapter 17 really sort of puts that idea right out there and is being put out not just in front of believers, in front of pagans. And Paul, in his preaching to them, says, listen, God, who made the world and everything in it, is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything because he himself gives all people life and all people breath and all people everything else. In other words, everything that's good is brought to you by God. 
And they just didn't realize it. Many people don't realize it's God that's really involved with them, but God's involved with everybody. Uh, and then he goes on. From one person, God made every nation of people, that they should inhabit the whole earth. And God determined the times set for them. In other words, the time in history which people would be born and the exact places where they should live. God saw people before they showed up here. This is the claim. You've got to ask yourself, do you believe it? Is it true? If it's true, that means God dreamed of you before you showed up here. If it's true, that means you're a dream of God come true. None of us, according to these kinds of texts, are accidents. All of us are intentional. And all of us are part of something God's trying to do. In fact, Paul says it very explicitly and strongly when he talks about those particularly in the, who have responded to the call to be part of the church. And he says in 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 12, he says, now you are the body of Christ and each one of you is a part of it. In other words, we are part of something God is thinking about. We're part of something God is planning. We're part of something God is doing. You, me, are part of something. Now back to our text. Paul says, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Level one, you've just got to decide, am I going to believe that I have a calling? That takes faith. And if you believe you have a calling, then you're going to have to face this idea. Are you living worthy of that calling? This implies that just because one has a call, it doesn't mean it automatically happens. That you have got to move into some kind of an orientation of worthiness before the calling will be fulfilled, which means calling is more a capacity than it is a reality. It's like a talent that's unborn or unworked on you. Until you work in your area of talent and perfect it, it's just un, it's unborn. Callings, apparently, are like that. And so he challenges us that we're to live in a way that's worthy of the calling. If God has called us, we should up our game a little. And he talks about this, Paul does again in 2 Timothy. And he, he talks about the church as being this large house. He says where there's articles not only of gold and silver, which is the special precious stuff, you always know where it is, but also wood and clay. Some of these things as gold and silver vessels or articles are for noble purposes or for purposes of calling. And some of the stuff is for ignoble. That was just common, common everyday stuff. If, those of you who know when you're, in your home, if it's like most homes, you have some nicer stuff like we have. Somebody gave us China years ago. Their last name was, began with a G, so it's, you know, my last name begins with a G, and they gave us all this really cool China, and it's got G on it. It's beautiful. It's really pretty stuff. You know where it is? In the cupboard most of the time. I see it once or twice a year because I am not worthy to eat upon it unless there's a bunch of people there. Okay, so like Thanksgiving or Christmas, right? So that stuff, and then we have the kind of ordinary stuff, you know, the common everyday plates. We have pocket plates. You know, I don't know if you have those. Those are little plastic pocket plates where you, if you look closely, you can see what once was done there. I've got little cuts in it and stuff, and you can see little worn out pockets. And then we've got the paper. We actually have paper plates. Those are the plates that you use once and throw away. Paper plates. 
They not only want to serve the food, they want to eat the food. So if you put a hamburger on the paper plate, it just, it just tries to get it. Leave it alone, that's fine. He goes, anyway. <laughs> Paul says, if a person cleanses himself from the latter, and others, if you cleanse yourself from what's ignoble or common, then you'll be an instrument for noble purposes, made holy. Holy means to be made different. Useful to the master, prepared to do every, any good work. What he's suggesting is that if you and I want to be specially used by God, we've got to cultivate some habits of worthiness. We've got to be willing to be put in cupboards and not used all the time. That, that we're okay with being put aside. That we don't find our identity in what we're doing. Paper plates, they need to let everyone know that they have had hamburger and beans on it. They just, they just, they can't, they just need, you know, they just need to, whatever they get to do, they need to suck something out of it. Right? The, even, the, even the plastic where uh, those pocket plates need to show a hint that somehow they've been used a lot. They need to find and communicate with people that they're being used. But the china, if you never use them, they're okay. One of the things about being worthy in a calling is that it, you're okay with God setting you aside. You're okay with being used and having no evidence that you were ever used. You're okay with the notion that, that somehow if someone else does what you feel you were called to do, you're even okay with that. Because you're not concerned about you, you're only concerned about bringing honor to the home. So this notion is this notion of being holy. Holy is what's uncommon. It's not a common thing. It's a precious thing, a set-apart kind of thing. Uh, Jesus uh, talked about this in Revelations. I used to hear this text preaching. Maybe you did too, going to um, um, uh, you know, the uh, camp meetings or the camps for kids. You know, the, uh, what do they call this? Family camps, right? Youth camps. And uh, we'd go and we'd hang at these camps, and one of the most... Uh, frequently preached messages was a message from Revelation where Jesus says, you know, I, I would that you were hot or cold, but since you were lukewarm, I will spit you out of my mouth. You know, and so the preacher would go on to say how God wishes we either really loved him or hated him. But because we're just kind of lukewarm, that's spit. <laughs> I thought it was funny. It spit you out of my mouth. In other words, you're going to hell. So, you know, you'd be a little confusing because I think, you know, really? I mean, they've got to be real on fire for God or hate God. And if I'm just kind of casual this week and kind of blase, I'm going to hell. That was kind of what the message was. But I don't think that's what the message is. I think when you look at the text and you realize that Paul, or that the a writer of the apocalypse is saying, listen, if these people, this particular church he's talking about was a church that was trying to fit in and be the same as others around them. And what Jesus was saying was, listen, if you want to be in my mouth, if you want me to speak through you, if you want me to change the world through you, you're going to either have to be hot or cold. You can't be lukewarm. In other words, you're going to have to be different. Because if you try to be the same as the place in which I put you, you're never going to be a voice for me. It's the notion of taking a hot drink and how we enjoy that, or a cold drink and how we enjoy that. Very few of us enjoy lukewarm drinks. If you take a hot drink, though, and you leave it out, long enough, it eventually takes on the temperature of the room it's in, and it becomes lukewarm. If you take a cold drink, and you leave it out long enough, it eventually takes on the temperature of the room it's in, and it becomes lukewarm. Jesus is saying, listen, if you don't 
stay hot about some things people are not hot about. If you don't stay cold about some things people are not that they're trying to be some other way about, I can never use you. You've got to be willing to be different or I can't use you, which is the challenge. If you're called to God in your work life, the only way that God can use you in your work life is if you're different, that you work differently than other people would work in their job with the complaining, whatever. You just you choose to face your work life. You choose to face uh, uh, your home life, whatever it is that you're doing, in a way that is different. And in doing it different with Christian perseverance and honesty and integrity and love and grace and all these kind of things, all of a sudden, you start to make a difference. And your calling starts to be fulfilled. Bottom line is, why would God ever ask you to work in a place if you don't know how to work? If you represent yourself and not him. This calling, it, it, they're kind of like the ABCs of life. You've got to learn the ABCs. If you're ever going to read Shakespeare, you've got to learn the ABCs. If you're ever going to read something difficult, you've got to learn how to be, learn the little stuff. All of us, if we're going to fulfill our calling, need to learn the little everyday's walking with God in a way that's holy. There's a story Jesus tells in Matthew 25 where he, this leader, or the, the ruler is doling out talents, and he doles out five to one guy, two to another guy, one to another guy, and he goes away. And the Bible says the guy that had five invested and worked with it and got five more. The guy that had two invested and worked with it got two more. The guy that had one sort of stuck it in the ground and said, well, you know, you're sovereign. You reap or you don't sow. And Jesus said that the guy that had the five and got ten, God applauded, or the leader, or the, the ruler applauded. The guy that had two and got four, the, the ruler applauded. But the guy that had one and buried it, he said, you wicked servant. He said, because you've done this, I'm going to take away what you have and give it to the guy that has more. So now here's, the, here's what the story is saying. Just because you have a calling, just because you have gifts, just because you have abilities, it does not mean that they're just automatically going to happen. You're going to have to do something with them. And if you don't do something with them, what you have will lose, the calling you have will be lost on you. It will be picked up by someone else. Interesting story, odd story. This was in Wisconsin when I was pastoring years ago. We had just built a building. The church was doing very, very well. It was, it was just a cool time uh, in my life, in, in our lives, Gail and I. And I was praying at the, in one of the rooms in the church one morning. I'm walking around praying, and um, I heard in my heart, I wasn't thinking about this, but I heard in my heart, you know, Brian was supposed to pastor this church. I knew exactly what that was. Brian was the guy that when I grew up in that town, uh, he was my mentor. He was a great guy. He was extremely gifted, very bright, very passionate about faith, connected with people very, very well, very pastoral. And, you know, he, I basically, we all kind of came around him. He was a gatherer. Well, as time went on, Brian ended up making some really bad choices, ended up stepping out of his commitment to Christ and ended up uh, uh, losing his family and uh, uh, becoming an alcoholic. And when I'm sitting there, or when I was walking around in that room, I felt like God said, because of his unfaithfulness, you're picking up something. He was supposed to do this. You're picking up on what he didn't do. Now, first of all, that made me a little sad because I thought, well, that means I'm sacrificing. <laughs> but secondly, I thought, well, that's cool. At least I'm faithful. See, here's the bottom line. The downside of this notion is you can miss your calling when you're unfaithful. The upside of this is that if you dare to begin to be faithful from now on, you can actually pick up on someone else's calling because they're usually unfaithful. There's a lot of unfaithfulness in the world. 
So wherever you are, what I'm trying to suggest to you is, if you will decide to start moving toward God with seriousness and worthiness, you're going to start fulfilling your calling. It isn't something that just happens. So back to Paul again. He says, as a prisoner of the Lord, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling that you've received. And then he says in verse 2, as you approach your calling, be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Now, there's basically two responses you can have to the idea that you have a calling. One is when you say, wait a minute, I've got a calling. God is actually calling me. You can respond with humility, which is basically saying, and so many of the saints and so many of what you read in Scripture, when different people are called, they say, why are you calling me? I can't even talk. Why are you calling me? I'm not worthy. You know, I have unclean lips. And you see that over and over again. But there, so, so, so that's the right kind of response. When you have a, realize God is actually calling you, that you are on purpose, that you're a dream of God come true, that your response should be, Lord, you know, what does this mean? What can I do? And you surrender, and there's a humility. The other response is pride. And you can think you're wonderful because um, you're called. Pride always has comparison in it, right? You're always looking at the other person, comparing yourself to them as kind of that uh, me-them dialectic. It's all wrapped up into that kind of thing. And it can be two kinds of responses of pride when you do that. One is you can have that kind of Luciferian response when Lucifer sees himself, according to some texts in the Old Testament, Ezekiel and Isaiah, he sees himself and he says, wow, man, (laughs) I'm happening, (laughs) I'm beautiful, right? That's what he saw. And the Bible says because he saw himself as beautiful, he said, I will ascend. Some people think they're smarter than everybody else or gifted than everybody else that somehow they deserve to be over people, and they're sort of begrudged the fact that they don't have more space than what they've been given. A lot of young men and young women called into ministry are tempted here. And they can sit in churches or sit different places and say, I, I can do better than that. I, I should be responsible for that. And if you're not careful, you can think you're promoting the kingdom of God using Lucifer's tactics. Right? So that's one kind of pride. The other kind of pride is you're comparing yourself to other people, and a lot of people fit in here. And you just don't feel very worthy. You look at yourself and you think, well, I just, you know, compared to them, I mean, I can't sing. I can't, I'm a little uncomfortable in public thoughts. I just, I just, I get a little confused. I'm just worthless. And that kind of pride is by you comparing yourself to others and you begin to feel inferior. You begin to cower. You begin to retreat. And in reality, without you realizing it, you're actually accusing God of making junk. Our three-year-old granddaughter, Evie, she thinks she's an artist. This is a sample of one of her, one of her great works. Now, this is tipped sideways, but this is actually a gammy this way. You can tell because she always puts these like eyelashes on the girls. The boys don't have those. This is from studying her work. <laughs> and this is Evie. That's her down there. So Evie is being held by gammy. Now, she thinks she's an artist. Uh, we don't care what you think. Because to be perfectly honest with you, we, we have these things all over our house. <laughs> and it's, we, it's, our house is a gallery of Evie stuff. Now, if you would say to Evie, Evie, you know, you should think about doing something else with your life or something disparaging, we would look at you weird because 
to criticize her is to criticize her work is to criticize her. Criticize the creator. See, whether we realize it or not, every time you down yourself or diss yourself, I'm not saying don't work on yourself. I mean, the barn needs paint and paint. You know what I'm saying? Right? <laughs> There's nothing wrong with working on yourself. But then, you know, but you, you're, you can't deal with how tall you are or what kind of personality you have. You can't. And if you're not careful, you'll just hate on yourself. There's all kinds of people. We live in an idol-worshiping culture that certain body types are deemed more beautiful than others. And it's so stupid. Because if you look through history, body types change all the time. You know, you look at Song of Solomon, and he's describing the babe. And, and as he describes her, he says, your eyes are like limpid pools. Your nose overhangs Damascus. Your neck is as the Tower of Lebanon. Your breasts are like two tiny fawns. Your belly is like heaped wheat. Did you ever see the Renaissance women? Thunderous, thunderous women. And everybody's going, oh, oh. And I, some of you won't remember, some of us old people remember when Twiggy showed up in 68 on television and she's like this twig and they're going, she's the new babe and everybody's going, I don't know. Right? And then sometime in the 80s, muscle women came in. I don't know, it is mixed up. But the point is, if you're not careful, you'll actually hate yourself because of your body shape, because of your, something about you, your hair. The accuser will always tell you your mistake. You buy into it, you're full of pride against your maker. Isaiah 45 says, What sorrow awaits those who argue with their creator? Does a clay pot argue with its maker? Does the clay dispute with the one who shapes it, saying, stop what you were doing? Does the pot exclaim, how clumsy can you be? Are you in pride? Or do you face the fact that you're called and you humble yourself and say, God, I know you've made me thus because I'm going to fit in places where others won't. You've intentionally made me, because you all know, you all know when you run into people, there's some people you just kind of connect with easily. Why do you think that happens? It's part of God's calling. It's part of God's fitting. Stop accusing God. And then lastly, the thing I want to point out is from this text is that our calling is always juxtaposed up against the idea that we're a community of equals and that we're called together into unity. So he goes on, Ephesians 4, Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. In other words, fight to get along. Why? Because it's not easy to get along. It's easy to not want to be with each other. Right? Our calling and our gifts are not supposed to separate us. They're supposed to be they were designed by God to integrate us. That we would begin to realize that we are called to depend on one another. You remember the great text in 1 Corinthians 12 where Paul says, not everyone's a hand, not everyone's an eye, not everyone's an ear. He says, not everyone's a nose. If everyone were a nose, where would the hearing be? If everybody was an ear, where would the smelling be? Is Paul's argument. He's saying we need each other. But you know what we do? We 
We have churches where all noses go. And churches where all ears go. And Paul says, no, no, no. We, and the eye cannot say to the foot, I have no need of you. The hand cannot say to the mouth. You know, in other words, we are in need of each other, is Paul's argument. He even says the parts that are the most prominent, like hands are more prominent than your liver. But honey, you can lose your hands and still live. The prominent gifts in the body, the talkers like me, you know, we, in, in our culture, the 21st century culture, the modern church, we tend to celebrate the people with the most gifts as though they need celebration. They don't need celebration. We need to celebrate the fact that everybody in this place is called and the ones that seem to be less are actually God places more honor on. You lose your liver. How many of you know livers don't look good and most will never see my liver? Right? But if you lose it, what happens to you? Can you live without it? See, the, 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 the most basic everyday parts, the people that God calls into a body that don't seem to have great gifts, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12, God places greater honor in them. That's why we're a community of equals. I'm not up here because I'm the best. I'm up here because I'm more holy than you. I'm up here because God called me to do it, and you're here because you're under judgment and you're forced to be under me. <laughs> you should be faithful. There might be hope for you. What we have to understand is that, you know, just like a, any kind of a project, a movie project, we watch movies on TV or watch, go, to TV, go to movies watch TV. You know that there are actors and there are supporting actors and then there's the people that do the lights and people that run the cameras and people that make sure the, the electricity is working. Any one of those people stop being engaged and the whole thing shuts down. Everyone's critical. That's how we're supposed to think, that we're all part of this, that we're supposed to respect each other and love each other and realize that it, that almost is more important than whether or not I get to do my gift at you. I should be more about us than me. In other words, I shouldn't walk in a room thinking, here I am. <laughs> walk in a room thinking, here we are. And then we're part of one another. And if you read these texts, I dare you to read the text of the New Testament, watching specifically or how many times they talk about unity and one, togetherness, being for each other. The fact that we're not just, we're not just like, we're just not like a, a, a bunch of bacteria in a bottle where we all kind of see each other and go, hi, fellow bacteria, fellow sanctuarian, hi. Okay, I'm going home now to reproduce myself. <laughs> and, uh, you know, and we're not just individuated uh, bacteria. The, the, the identification for us, according to Scripture, is we're a body. You cut off your finger, it doesn't last very long. It can't live outside the body. That, that kind of idea, most of us, we don't have that idea. And yet, it's, and I believe this is one of the reasons why discipleship is so difficult in the 21st century, is because we all tend to think we're all a bunch of bacteria that come together in the same place and we try to encourage each other and go out and bacteria away instead of realizing that we really are dependent on one another. He goes on to say, and we'll close with this, Ephesians, the rest of it. He says, there is one body and one spirit. I will see D about this one. Just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. They knew what Jesus said. They knew Jesus said, if if if, if you guys love one another, this is how the world will know that you are my disciples. 
if you keep moving toward each other, if you keep fighting, and if you know anything about church history, all through the first thousand years, they fought to stay together. They would have these councils where all the leaders of the church would come in and sometimes spend years together in the same room until they worked it out because they knew they needed to stay together. They knew that it was important that the body stay together. And so there's only one church up to 1053. And then in 1053, heartache of heartache, the East and the West come to an impasse and they split. They stay basically the same in their teaching, but they split. And they last like that, basically the same, but split after a thousand years to about 1500 something. And the Great Reformation happened. Now the church needed to be reformed, no doubt about it. But what happened in the Reformation was a applause of schism. And up until the 1500, there's two basic streams of Christianity. Do you know how many there are today? 2000, well, this is actually as of 2011 is the last data I saw. 38,000 different denominations. Something's wrong. Something's wrong. That's not including all the independent churches. There are hundreds of thousands of split-off churches. Noses going here, ears going there, mouths going there, livers. We don't know where the livers are. I was in, um, at, uh, in Rome about five years ago, and, and in this meeting that was an, uh, kind of an ecumenical thing, and there was a presence of the Roman Catholic Church, and they have... The Roman Catholic Church sees themselves, the seat of Peter is sort of a seat of unity. That's kind of what, what they kind of identify themselves, to bring the church together. Catholic actually means altogether. So they, uh, they were presenting at this meeting I was at, and the guy that's the head of the ecumenical kind of arm of the, of the Catholic Church um, was talking, and he said, you know, I said, we feel that we're always trying, we're always trying to move toward each other, trying to figure out how we can connect. And they're, they're in meetings with, leaders of Pentecostal denominations, Baptist denominations, I mean, just all over. They're in, they're in meetings with Lutherans, constantly in meetings with the, with the East. Anyway, he, he made the statement, I thought it was very provocative. He said, you know, he said, we're, we're seeing some progress. We just feel like the church should move toward each other instead of moving from each other. We're always running from each other. We want to start moving toward each other. And he said, we really believe sometime in the next three to 500 years, I wanted to raise my hand as an American and say, can we project manage this down to 20 years? <laughs> Set some goals, work diligently, I'll volunteer. But I actually love what they were saying. I, I love that they understand that some of this takes time to begin to think about, wait a minute, maybe Jesus wants us to move toward each other instead of from each other. Sidebar. If I was betting on the future, you know where my bet would be? That Jesus will come back when his church is moving toward each other, not necessarily all together, but toward each other, that that's more important than what goes on in Jerusalem this afternoon. Sorry. What if we started saying we're called, we live worthy of that calling, we realize we're part of a community of equals, and we start looking at what God's doing in all the churches in our community and realize God's at work in all of them. That we're not here this morning because Sanctuary is the best church. 
right? We're not here this morning because we're the people that are most right. We're here this morning because we're called to be here. <laughs> Praise the Lord. We just ask. Let's stand. And what would it be like if you walk out of here this week and when you run into some Lutherans or some Catholics or some Methodists or some heavy Pentecostals, whatever, what if in your mind you thought, I wonder what God's doing there? And you actually leaned into them and opened your heart to them and realized we're all part of one another? I think, I think it'll make a better world. Grace. Amen. So good, so good. Let's just commit in our hearts to lean towards each other, each other here and each other out there. Let's raise our voices as we close. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye heavenly hosts. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen. As you go, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May His face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May his face turn towards you and give you peace. So go in peace today. Love each other. Bless each other as you go. If you're in need of prayer, I have a prayer team over by the cross this morning. Have a great week.